0: Uh, take a few minutes and make uh, some remarks uh, by way of summary, and I hope also clarity. Um, We are in a part of the letter of the Galatians, we're going to read from 15 to 29 in a moment, uh, which is dealing with the nature of law and promise, And uh, Paul is contrasting law and promise uh, here, and he doesn't exhaust all that could be said about law and promise, of course. Um, And in particular, here in our text, he speaks about the purpose of the law, and what he states as he writes this letter to a particular church with a pastoral concern for what's taking place in it could be stated other ways. And so, I want to state it this way, uh, uh, both to be clear as well as to highlight, and this will, of course, anticipate some of what the sermon will say as well. The law and the gospel actually agree in the Christian life and in the Bible. The law shows us the need for promise, and the promise shows us the need for the law. Now, they serve different purposes in God's uh, plan, and they accomplish different things in our lives. The law is holy, uh, righteous, and good, uh, for it comes from the God who is of all these things and is a gift, a gift to a redeemed people. The law, one of its purposes is to reveal sin. It shows us that we are worse than we think. It can do this because it is a reflection of the reality of who God is in His very holiness. All His character is reflected in the law. For example, because there is only one God, the first commandment is you shall have no other gods. To have other gods is to engage in what's not real and what's false. And there uh, cannot represent God. We cannot do that because he is a spirit, and so the second commandment uh, forbids that. It reveals that the life God intends for us, and it shows us what it means to love God and other people. It sets forth uh, the positive requirements of the law, although the law is in its entirety framed almost in its entirety in a negative way in terms of what we must not uh, do. And it gives us a vision for what life would be like and what we would be like if Adam and Eve had never rebelled. And so we can say that the law is a rule of life or a guide for our Christian living. And Paul will say as much in chapter five, but not in those words. The law also shows us our need for the promise of the gospel. It doesn't disagree with salvation by promise because it exposes, the way it does this is it exposes our inability uh, to do this. We can't uh, keep it. And if we really listen uh, to the law, uh, if we listen deeply to it, we'll hear it tell us we do not measure up. You simply cannot live out the depths it requires Uh, Jesus explores these depths briefly in the Sermon on the Mount. And he tells us that not murdering is more than not shedding blood, but it includes hating and even disdaining other people. Or uh, to grasp the positive demand of the law, the law calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. It's an amazingly high thing to be called to do. It means we have to have as much interest in expending the same energy and creativity toward the meaning of their needs as our own. And so what the law says to us is you uh, cannot gain life or be approved by God or be acceptable to Him by keeping it. In this way, the law leads us to Christ. And the law is important in the Christian life because it actually exposes this truth about ourselves, uh, but it does so without condemnation. The Christian is not condemned uh, by the law. Christ has borne that uh, for us. Um, and the law is not the promise. The law is not uh, grace, though it was a gracious gift, it doesn't give us the graces we need to actually keep it. And so, it drives us to Christ uh, it, by moving us to despair that our efforts cannot actually achieve God's holy uh, standard. And so, we need a Savior. And we need a Savior not just to begin our relationship with God, but we need a Savior to live out the implications of that uh, relationship. If we don't uh, recognize our need for a Savior, uh, then we will approach living the law without actually loving the God who gave us the law. And this is, of course, why we confessed our sins, and it's uh, why we use the means of grace. In these ways, we are acknowledging in, in the most practical of ways, publicly, we still need a Savior The promise of the gospel gives us life. It empowers us to live as God intends. Uh, The the promise of the gospel includes Jesus coming to rescue us from all evil. And that includes his breaking the power of sin in our lives. The promise includes the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the writing of the law in our hearts. Though Paul doesn't mention that in this uh, letter which means that we can now love the law and we have the resources uh, granted to us to actually be able uh, to keep it out of love, out of love for God. The promise doesn't nullify the truth of the law as God's standard and the law doesn't take the place of the promise. Well, I hope I've said that Uh, clearly, I assure you, I have uh, spent many hours trying to say that uh, in light of all that we confess as a church. And I want to invite you now to stand and uh, hear uh, Paul's letter from Galatians 4, verses 15 to 29. Father, we confess that apart from your spirit that these words will not have uh, the intent that they should have. Uh, We ask that our minds would be set on the things of the Spirit, that our uh, hearts would be open to receiving what the Apostle says to us, and that you'd help both the speaker and hearer today. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant... No one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and his offspring. It doesn't say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one. And to your offspring, who is Christ. This is what I mean. The law, which came 430 years afterward, does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise void. For if the inheritance comes by the law, it no longer comes by promise, but God gave it to Abraham by a promise. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. And it was put in place through angels by an intermediary, of you as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, no male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. You may be seated. So, that's a lot of Scripture. You know, I want to see the mountains, and we're not going to descend in all the valleys of the details uh, today, and we'll take up the second half next week. Paul has been showing us that there are two ways to live. One is by faith, the other is by works, Galatians 3.2. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law, or by hearing with faith. To live by faith is to live resting on the foundation of what Christ has done. It is living by the Spirit. It is living out of the resources uh, that are ours. Uh, And it means those resources are necessary for us to render to God the obedience that He's owed as our Creator and now Redeemer. And it means uh, that all the blessings that our Christ's are given to us as we're united to him. And so you have God's blessing if you have put your faith in Christ. You have his acceptance, his friendship, and everything that goes along with that. The alternative is to live by works, to rely on obedience for your confidence before God. By works, Paul is clear. He means by obeying some standard. And this includes law-keeping and being moral. And this is to live by performance. It is living by the flesh. And that, for Paul, means our Adamic nature, our human resources apart from Christ. And it means uh, that you will lose your joy and your freedom And you will experience, in effect, the curse of the law. And you are in danger of falling away from grace. And that's why this letter is written in such a strong and direct uh, manner. Because that is, in fact, the danger the church is in. And throughout this letter, Paul will insist on these as two incompatible, And mutually exclusive options. Paul has put it very strongly in verses 13 and 14 where he writes, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree so that in Christ Jesus the blessings of Abraham might come uh, to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through uh, faith. That Christ has redeemed us from the curse and condemnation of the law, which comes because we simply can't keep it. Uh, or we can't perform it consistently, or even, Paul says this in Romans, live up to our own moral uh, code. We're just not capable uh, of it. Uh, this means that the gospel is not the Ten Commandments, and the Ten Commandments are not the gospel. And so, this naturally uh, raises a very important question. It's this. If we're free from the law, does that mean we don't have to obey the law of God? If I am always and only saved by Christ's performance and not my own, why should I strive to live a holy life? Do I have any current obligations to keep God's law, and why? Now, I already spoiled the answer to that question once because I've already told you, yes, yes, We have an obligation uh, to keep the law. And Paul will talk about this in chapter 5 as he talks about being led by the Spirit. If we are led by the Spirit, we will put to death sin, the desires of the flesh, and we will fulfill the demands of the law, the demands to love, the positive demands of the law. Not perfectly, of course. So this is a very practical question. Do we have to obey the law of God if not? What is our relationship as Christians to the law of God? And really, all our questions about uh, living, all these practical questions about how I should treat my friend, what I can uh, uh, get away with at uh, uh, work, how I spend my money, all comes down, really, to this uh, question. What is my relationship as a Christian to God's law? And this question is central... What I'm saying to you is central to our Christian uh, living. And it's not just how we start our relationship with God, it's also uh, how we live out our relationship with God. Now, this sermon's going to be a little different than most of the ones I've preached because the relationship between law and gospel is complex. We uh, can lose the gospel by either erring in becoming legalists, which is the problem at Galatia, or we can become antinomians against uh, the law. And each of these comes in a variety of expressions, uh, and some of them are very subtle, and I will not develop all of them, but I'm developing some of them as we move through Galatians. And for those of you who are Very technically minded, and want to see this in both the history of the church and carefully present it. I commend to you Sinclair Ferguson's The Whole Christ, which uh, you can get the sense of it from his lectures. Which, if you have Amazon Prime or you search, you can find them. Ligoniers got them there for nothing. Um, But the book. Argues uh, more, as any book would, than a lecture, and uh, and uh, will reveal more of the history of how the church has wrestled with this. So, having set that as aside, I want to get back to the main part of this sermon. So, remember, these false teachers came to Galatia, and they were teaching, believe on Jesus, obey God's law, and then you'll be saved. And Paul said, believe in Jesus, and you were saved, and as a result, you will obey the law. There's a huge difference. Well, it's all the same words, but it truly matters how you orient, not just for justification, but actually in practical Christian living. So, Paul presses this further by showing what the law doesn't do. By arguing from Scripture and experience that God's dealing with us, His promises have priority over the law. And Paul starts with our experience. He starts with an example from everyday life. He speaks about human contracts, which are binding and difficult to break once they're set into place. Verse 15, To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. The word here in the original is the word for legal will. And though practices varied in the ancient world about the details, they all had this in common, and this is why this is a good example. Because once a will is duly and legally uh, made, we consider it binding no matter what comes up. Suppose a a woman has two children, and one of them has done very uh, well in life, and the other has struggled financially. And so she decides to give two thirds of what she has to the one who struggled and one third to the one that's done well. And the will is binding even if the rich child loses everything the day after she dies. The will holds even though the conditions have changed. And Paul knows that the Jews of his day thought that Moses' law, given 430 years later than the promise of salvation to Abraham, changed things. In giving the law, they say, now this means that the path you follow to get the blessings promised to Abraham is law keeping. And so, now we have to obey the law of Moses. Not just the ceremonial law, but they would never separate the ceremonial law from the whole of law. We can make that distinction, but they never thought in those terms. And you could say, that the Jews of Paul's day are reading the Bible differently than Paul is, and that would be true. And Paul shoots this down when he writes in verse 17, this is what I mean, the law which came 430 years afterward does not annul a covenant previously ratified by God so as to make the promise uh, void. The law does not The law does not annul the promises given to Abraham. It doesn't do away with promises. And so the law of Moses doesn't turn living by faith into God's promises for his salvation into something new or different. It remains a promise. The coming of the law doesn't mean that God's not absolutely committed to his graciously sending a Savior to bring a blessing or bring salvation to the world. Now, this is a very potent argument Paul's making because if the law of Moses came as a way of salvation, then it means that God's changed his mind. It would mean that God decided we don't need a Savior, that blessings would come on the basis of performance. And Paul sounds this note back in chapter 2 in verse 21 when he writes, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. If the law functioned this way, and Paul will touch on this again in, in Galatians 5, 2 to 6, where he speaks of the hope of righteousness, which is more than imputed righteousness. It means the actual possession of righteousness so that we might have the holiness by which no man can stand Uh, before the Lord, and that happens. Uh, God finishes the work of making us holy upon our death. We will not experience that in this uh, life so that we may stand uh, before him in actual righteousness. So if the law functioned this way in God's plan for our lives, then it would do away with the promise altogether. Verse 18, for if the inheritance came by law, it no longer comes by promise. But God gave it to Abraham by promise. So the law and promise are mutually exclusive as ways to be saved as the foundation of our lives. You see, if I give you something because it's promised, it's not because of your performance. If I give you something because what you have done, it's not because of my promise. And Paul's just being inflexible about it. Either something comes by grace or it comes by works. It either comes because it's given as a promise or it's received for performance. It's either one or the other and there aren't any third options. So this is what this looks like. Let's suppose my uh, rich uncle uh, decided uh, that he would give you a million dollars. He just wants to meet you and he's a generous guy. He wants to give you a million dollars. And probably the only way you could fail to receive the million dollars is to fail to believe the promise and not meet uh, my uncle. Uh, but if I told you my uncle Jack is willing uh, to leave you his inheritance for 10, uh, 10, of $10 million because you have to live with him and take care of him, let me say that again. If my uncle promises to give you a million dollars, if you go live with him and take care of him in his old age then you have to fulfill the requirements and conditions if you're to get the money. The promised gift only needs to be believed to be received, but a law wage must be obeyed to be received. That's what Paul means here. So does this mean the law uh, doesn't replace or change God's promises, which it does? Then why did God give the law at all? Well, Paul states the purpose of the law uh, in verse 19. Why then the law? It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise has been made and it was put into place through angels uh, by an intercessor. Now, this is a very uh, compact statement that the law was added because of transgressions. Just what does it mean? Which um, really, what does Paul mean as he writes this? Well, there's four possibilities. One is is that the law was given to restrain sin. In other words, the law was given to push people back into line. They were sinning, and they need to, they need to be uh, told to straighten up. Or the law's purpose is to define sin. This is what Paul himself writes in the letter to the Romans in chapter 4 when he says, where there is no law there's no transgression. What he means by that is that the law is the measuring stick for our actions. And the law shows us which are sin. Without the law, we really wouldn't know. We'd be in darkness. The law, thirdly, the third possibility is given to deal with sin. Now, that would mean uh, that Paul was saying that the sacrifices given in the Old Testament were given to make atonement until Jesus uh, came. In other words, this is what we sometimes call the ceremonial uh, law. And while in, in, in many ways all of these statements are true, Paul's statement is probably best understood this way, that the law was given to increase sin, to produce sin. The first view would be the view of the false teachers uh, who insist on law keeping. But Paul says law-keeping brings condemnation and curse. Paul says this in uh, Galatians 4-5, that we have been liberated from the law, and those under the law are enslaved to sin. Under here, in the language of the Westminster Confession, means under the law as a covenant of works. You do it to get something from God. Now Paul is, uh, says this in Romans 5:20, uh, now the law came to increase the trespasses, but when sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And this fits with the history of Israel, for life under the law did not produce a law-abiding society. Instead, sin reigned in Israel, and as a result, both the northern and southern kingdoms go into exile. The second option that the law helps define sin may very well be included in what Paul writes, but the accents on this former idea. The idea here is that the law increased sin in Israel until Christ. And that really fits the story of the Old Testament. And so, the first purpose of the law is to multiply transgressions so that it would be evident that the law is not the answer to the problem of sin. The law is not the answer to the problem of sin. And this is our personal experience as well. There is something in the human heart, uh, when it's told no, it wants to do what it's told no to do. The sign that says keep off the grass feels like to our hearts in our fallenness, like, well, we need to step on it. Mom says don't get into the cookie jar. It seems like we need to sample the cookies. It's just the nature of our heart. And that's what Paul's saying in Romans 7, uh, 7 and 13, when he says, for I do not understand my own actions, for I do not do uh, what I want, but the very thing I hate. Is the law bad? Of course not. Paul says in Romans 7, the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. He completely agrees with the law. Murder, adultery, theft, and lying are all wrong. But what Paul is saying is, I agree with the law, but actually I can't obey it. The problem isn't the law, it's us. We are still sinful, and so by nature we're rebels. And the law provokes us to sin even though the power of the law has been broken in the Christian life there's still a part of us that's provoked by law and then Paul adds in uh, verse 21 of the third chapter this is the law then contrary to the promises of God certainly not for if a law had been given that could give life then righteousness would indeed be by the law. The law cannot give life. It was not intended by God to give life. It doesn't give us the power to live the way we should. It doesn't give us the power to obey. Now, I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again. Christians have that uh, power. It comes from the Holy Spirit as we believe uh, the gospel, and the Spirit will lead us into a conflict so that we come to see we need to put to death sin. Now, uh, here's what I mean. Nancy and I have some uh, dear friends uh, with young children, and they are very determined To do a better job in family life than they experienced in their homes growing up. And that's a wonderful ambition. Um, And they have on their refrigerator uh, a a set of rules. It's labeled God's Rules Be kind to each other, help by doing your chores, share with others, speak only uh, what, what words help others and honor and obey your parents. And of course, all of these are things the Bible uh, speaks up to, but posting the rules on the refrigerator, while they may serve as a reminder, they do not empower or enable the children to actually do these things. Now, like you, I have hammers and screwdrivers in my toolbox. And hammers are great for driving nails. But screwdrivers are poorly made for that purpose. Screwdrivers are not hammers, and they are not, they are made to remove or put in screws. They're the best way to do that. Two different tools serve two different purposes. And so, law and promise have different purposes in God's plan and function differently in our lives. The law reveals sin, and it increases transgressions to show us our need of a Savior, that we cannot save ourselves, and that the law will not change us or give us life. The promise is how we receive a Savior who gives us life and transforms us. Now, this practically is a source of confusion for many people, and it's true for people who go to church. A lot of Christians use the law to facilitate change, to get holiness, to restore their humanity, and to become Christ-like. It would be like taking a, a, a ruler or a yardstick to measure how high you were in order to make up for what you really need to eat to grow. It's the same thing. This is moralism, and it often goes undetected. And you're probably a moralist if you think that the solution to bad behavior in a group or with somebody under you is a rule. Read the rules. Read the rules publicly. Read them firmly with a strong voice and emphasis. Uh, Post a sign with the rules on them and emphasize the consequences for failure to keep them. If there's not a rule, then, well, let's write one to deal with the problem. If you think this will solve the problem of a bad behavior or bad behavior in general, what you're seeing is moralism. Just think about this. We live in a nation of laws, do we not? Do you know how many pages make up uh, the federal code, the US code of law? It's 23,000. Now, we have a multiplied laws as a nation, but has it made us a law-buying society? Just, righteous, good, and kind. Moralism rests on the idea that somehow knowing the right thing gives you the power to do it. That it gives you the power and even the motivation to do it. And Paul rejects this. Now, not being crystal clear about uh, the law's function means moralism becomes the default approach to trying to change, to pursue holiness. And it means this, and this is very practical, and if you've gotten lost here this morning, which is completely understandable, um, then, then pay attention to here, because this is, this is where the rubber meets the road in our lives. It means you'll miss the sin underneath the sin, because you'll be trying to effect change only at the surface of your life, and not at the level of your heart. If you obey the law without a deep love for God, then your motivation for obeying the law instead of love for him will actually be self-love or a fear of condemnation. Let's think about lying. Let's suppose uh, that you have a habit of lying. What do you do about it? Well, the moralistic way to stop lying is this. It's either fear, I must stop doing this because God will punish me or he won't bless me or I'll be found out as a liar, which is another version that's directed toward people, or pride. I must stop doing this because I'm a good Christian and I don't want to be the kind of person who lies. So the gospel way to stop lying is this. You have to ask, why am I lying in this particular situation? And the reason we lie or ever do any sin is because at the moment there is something we feel we simply must have, and so we lie. One typical reason we lie, though by no means the only one, is because we deeply fear losing face or someone's approval. This means that the sin under the sin of lying is idolatry. At that moment it's idolatry in the form of human approval. If we break the commandment against false witness, which is what lying means, uh, it is because we're breaking the first commandment against idolatry. We're looking for more than human to human approval more than to Jesus as the source of our worth, our meaning, our happiness. Under the sin of lying is the failure to rejoice in and believe in our acceptance in Christ. Under the sin of lying is a kind of heart unbelief in the gospel, whatever you may tell yourself intellectually. This happens even if you are absolutely clear in your mind about this and you profess it. It happens to people in churches even if the pastor is completely clear In proclaiming this, because people don't leave the church always possessing what the pastor has proclaimed. So anything you add to Jesus as a requirement for a happy life is functionally your Savior. It is a pseudo Lord and it is controlling you, whether it be power, approval, comfort, or control. And the only way to change your habit of lying is to repent of your failure to believe the gospel. And that you are not saved and acceptable by pursuing this goal and serving this master, but by the grace of Jesus Christ. I experienced this uh, very personally in the area of anger. It took me years to see that repenting of just anger never solved my problem with anger. It was until uh, I saw that sin underneath it was I wanted to be able to control people, time, events that I came to see that that's what I needed to repent of, and I experienced great release from anger as a dominating sin. This is, in fact, what uh, the Belgic Confession of 1561 uh, says, and I've put a copy of this uh, chapter on sanctification. It says, Therefore, it is so far from being true that that his justifying faith makes us remiss In a holy life, that on the contrary, without it, we would never do anything out of love for God, but only out of self love and fear of damnation. So I want to pull all this together, and this is a little bit long, and I'm deeply indebted to Tim Keller for pulling this uh, together. Uh, But he and Sinclair are of one heart and mind about this, and so I feel very confident in letting you know. That this is not just Pastor Rick's opinion uh, that it rests on, on solid foundation. So Paul is indicating not that we no longer have any relationship to the, value of the values of God's law, but that we are no longer view it as a system of salvation. It no longer forces obedience through coercion and fear. The gospel means that we no longer obey the law out of a fear of rejection and a hope of salvation by performance. And when we grasp that the salvation by promise, our hearts are filled with gratitude and a desire to please and be like our savior. And the way you do that is by obeying the law. And once we come to the law motivated by gratitude, we are better in our obedience of the law than we ever were when we thought our obedience might save us. Why? Well, first, if we think that law obedience will save us, we become emotionally incapable of admitting how searching and demanding the law is. For example, Jesus says to resent or disdain anyone is a form of murder. Only if we know we can't keep it completely, but that we don't need to keep it at all all to be saved because Christ did it for us, will we be able to admit just how broad and deep this command is? If we are seeking to be saved by obedience, by our obedience of it, we will constantly be trying to limit the scope and application of God's law in order to make it manageable for us to keep. And this is, of course, what the Pharisees did in Jesus' day, and Jesus roundly uh, condemns them for it. Secondly, grateful joy is a motive that will lead to a much more enduring obedience than fearful compliance. Fearful compliance makes obedience a drudgery that can't Withstand Adversity. In short, the gospel allows us to truly honor the law in a way that a legalistic people cannot. Without the gospel, we may obey the law, but we will learn to hate it. We will use it, but we will not truly love it. Only if we obey the law because we are saved rather than to be saved will we do so for God. That's Galatians 2.19. Once we understand salvation by promise, we do not obey God any longer for our sake by using the law salvation system to get things from God. The heart of all religion, all pagan religion, is to do things, to offer sacrifices, to keep certain rules in order to get things from God And the heart of all biblical religion is submission to a gracious, generous God who would give us all things. It's the difference between using God and serving God. And there's all the difference in the world. It's rather now we obey God for his sake, using the law's content to please and delight our Father. And so law and grace work together in Christian salvation. Many people want the sense of joy and acceptance but they won't admit the seriousness of their sin. They will not listen to the law's searching and painful analysis of their lives and hearts. But unless we see how helpless and profoundly sinful we are, the message of salvation will not be exhilarating and liberating. Unless we know how big our debt is, we can't have any idea how great Christ's payment was. If we think that we are not all that bad, the idea of grace will never change us. The law shows us as we really are, and so the law points us to see Christ. He is really our Savior, the one who obeyed the law on our behalf and then died in our place that we might receive the promised blessing. The law allows us to love Jesus and enables us to show our love in grateful obedience to him. Let's pray. O gracious uh, Father, uh, be pleased uh, to grant that these uh, words that I've labored uh, to bring with utter clarity would be clear to those who hear them. May it be that our hearts would be uh, uh, captured by Christ that it would be out of uh, gratitude and joy that we would yield uh, to him all the obedience that's due to him. May the law be received by us as it's intended a gift to a redeemed people. And Lord, may in our keeping of it, we see the depths of all our uh, outward surface sins And come to see how deeply we need to turn from idolatry and embrace you. Lord, grant uh, these things to the end uh, that our lives might adorn the gospel. That we might give evidence of your grace. That all the good works uh, that you command will come forth from us. For we acknowledge uh, that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Amen.